I played the original Dying Light way back in the day, and I had a lot of fun with it. It was mostly the co-op offering most of the fun for me. Some really enjoyed the story, I'm sure, but for me and my friends, that camaraderie is where the game really shined. Likely, this was because we were playing the game years after launch, when DLC abounded and the complete edition of the game was very, very cheap. I'm not sure, but regardless of the mitigating circumstances, I am sure that I enjoyed my time with the game back then. So when I found out there was going to be a sequel, I was excited. More free-running parkour through a post-apocalyptic abandoned dilapidated city? Who wouldn't want that? And after multiple delays, eventually the game did launch in early 2022. And it received mixed reactions when it launched. Just to run through them quickly, the game did have a ton of bugs when it launched, and many reviews mentioned these technical difficulties, whether they were outright bugs, checkpoints not triggering, or performance issues on computers that really should not have been having issues to begin with. But at the outset, let me say that I actually did not suffer from any of these technical shortcomings. I actually had a pretty good time with the game and I didn't run into many bugs at all. A friend of mine had his game hard lock him out, requiring him to manually delete his save files to restart the game completely. I've also seen countless other people report bugs and crashes, but thankfully I didn't have any of these issues, and many seem to have been patched out in the weeks and months since the game's launch, so I won't dwell on them too much here. You guys know I heavily penalize games when they have technical issues at launch. I think you must, otherwise you're incentivizing studios putting out rushed pieces of garbage, which is why I gave Horizon Forbidden West a really hard time. It's why I gave Elden Ring a hard time. You have to be consistent with these things, otherwise you're just a fanboy making excuses for companies you like. The problem is I don't actually have that footage for this video, so I don't have anything to talk about. So I figured I would mention it. Some people had major issues at launch, I was not one of those people. The extent of bugs that I encountered on a first-hand basis were actually just second-hand because we were playing co-op. A friend of mine was helping me capture some footage of the co-op gameplay while I was experimenting with it and trying it out. And he actually had so many issues with his game's performance that the only potential fix was actually to completely delete and then reinstall the game after a hard reboot and driver reinstall. And I don't think it's that scandalous to say that no AAA game should ever release with that burden placed on the player just to get it functioning at a basic level. And the really unfortunate side effect of these technical issues at launch was that many people who would have enjoyed the game's co-op decided to wait on the game because they just didn't want to risk spending $60, $70 on a title that would just end up having a bunch of technical issues that they couldn't enjoy. So a lot of people just passed on it and effectively waited for a sale, a sale that probably won't come soon enough because most players have just moved on. And I ran into this too. I had friends that I wanted to play co-op in this game with, and these same friends had played the original game with me and had a great time in that co-op system. But here, they just didn't want to risk it. But regardless, I decided to give it a try. So I booted up the game and was greeted with a familiar title screen. And it's here that we get into the nitty gritty of Dying Light 2. Let's get into it. So, when we boot up the game, we are prompted with an interesting statement. The text reads, every choice will shape the future. And this immediately sets the expectation with players that their choices in the main story will have long lasting significant consequences. 
this made me really excited. I was pumped. I was like, okay, yeah, and a dying light with a branching story RPG decision. Like, let's let's do this. I'm I'm down. It ends up not really being true, but you know, at the start, I was excited. We then get to select our desired difficulty, and we have choices between easy, normal, or hard. With the easy option, you'll receive less damage and receive more items. Normal is the balanced mode between challenging and ease of engagement. Items are well hidden and require effort to find, but hard makes rare items way harder to find, resource management is key, and damage is greatly increased on the receiving end, though not on the giving end. What this basically means is that if you're playing on hard, you're going to be doing a lot of busy work, because a lot of these systems rely on the player going, collecting certain items, crafting healing items or different things they need to complete missions, and then repeating the process after they've run through that mission or retrieved the item they were seeking. On easy and normal, you're given enough of those crafting items that you don't actually need to do this, but on the harder difficulty, you will spend a lot of time running around looking for these small little items that spawn far less frequently. And it's kind of a bummer if I'm being completely honest. Difficulty in games is great, but I usually look for difficulty not in busy work and how well a player can juggle the minutia of very, very small and complicated systems, but rather in the actual quality of the engagement. If you're fighting an enemy, they're hard because their movesets are varied and vast, and it's hard to keep track of what's going on, but skill can overcome that. Skill being the operative word there. With this difficulty setting, it often just feels like they're giving unfair boosts to enemies' damage, and then they are nerfing your ability to discover items that you need in order to actually engage with the game. Kind of sucks if I'm being real. But regardless, we select our difficulty option and begin the story. We open in 2036, 15 years after the fall of humanity. We are playing as a character named Aiden, a pilgrim who carries messages between large settlements of survivors of the virus that's caused the global destruction in which we'll be playing. And it's a good starting point for the character because it explains why they're able to do what they do. In order to be a pilgrim, you would have to be agile, capable in combat, frugal and resourceful. This is so much better than when a game gives a nonsensical backstory to the main character like in Fallout 4 if you choose the female character who was simply a lawyer before the bombs fell. There's no reason for her to be able to use a gun or survive in the wastes, whereas the male lead character in Fallout 4 was a soldier and has a built-in justification for his capabilities and his shortcomings. It's a small detail, but shows that the writers wanted to justify the character's existence and powers, something that really helps with immersion for cynical pricks like me. During the opening sequence, we will free run through a tunnel as a bunch of zombies chase us, narrowly escaping as a man named Spike yells at you from a cliff nearby. He asks you to join him, and then you are put through the introductory sequence that serves as the tutorial section for the free running and basic melee combat. It's pretty simple, nothing too complicated, especially if you played the first game, but I will still insist that the button layout for controller by default is just odd. The right bumper for jump, it still sits in my head weird. Every time I pick up the controller to play the game, I have to like force myself to realize it's right bumper, right bumper is jump, it's not A, calm down. I know it's stupid, maybe I just struggle 
with this type of thing, but it still bugs me. <laughs> Once you meet up with Spike, he will guide you through a basic crafting tutorial as well, asking you to collect honey and chamomile. And it's here that you'll notice that the collecting animation is super generic and in no way reflects what you're actually collecting from wherever you're reaching to. I get it, not every game can be Red Dead Redemption 2 and have careful animations for skinning animals and reaching into different objects and placing them in a satchel with realistic leather physics. I get it. It still just looks super stupid to me. I will also point out that in this introductory section, I did come across some really bizarre running animations that seemed kind of screwed up, which most likely was just a technical issue considering I was playing this section really close to launch. It's not a great first impression if I'm being honest, but I have trouble calling this a bug or a major glitch. It's just kind of weird. Regardless, I think we could all agree this isn't functioning in the way that it's supposed to. Soon after you learn how to craft, you'll come up on a house that you start searching for supplies. A bunch of people threw a party here back in 2023 as everything was collapsing. Perhaps it's unreasonable of me, or maybe I'm just mistaken, but this building really doesn't look like it's been abandoned for over a decade. The condition is way too good. Food is still out on plates with flies actively hovering over top, the water damage is minimal, and the furniture all looks to be in pretty good shape. Until I recently went full-time on YouTube and Twitch, I was actually working professionally as a commercial real estate broker, and I sold apartment buildings in all different conditions, some really good, some downright terrible, some that had been abandoned for extended period of times with squatters staying in them, you name it, I probably saw it. One time I even sold a six unit apartment building that had been abandoned for some length of time between 18 months and three years. The owner didn't know. Sidebar, can you imagine owning like a six, $700,000 building and just being like, oh, I don't know if people have been renting or staying there for a few years i have no idea i have no clue like you got to be pretty loaded to be that careless <laughs> but that apartment building looked to be in about the same condition as this house is though all of the food all of the crap that was lying around that flies could have infested was long gone. Obviously, we could point to this being a mansion that likely was built better than your average apartment building. Perhaps there are environmental differences in the weather, but my point is that my anecdotal experience would suggest that this house is in too good of shape. Now, maybe people were living in this house until much more recently, and all of these remnants are from later survivors, but if that's the case, I never heard any dialogue communicating this. And if that were the case, why would all of the decorations from the party still be up? Surely later survivors would have at least done a little to fortify this place and removed some of the party decorations, but just doesn't make sense. Furthermore, in the next room over and out on the patio, you can find the decomposing bodies of all of the party goers. They're all sitting or laying exactly where they died. The only reasonable inference is that these people threw a party to celebrate the end of the world. But not in a campy way, but rather in a literal way. You see, they all came together in this beautiful house celebrating life, or at least what was left of it. And then they all went out on their own terms in a Jonestown-esque send-off. The pill bottles laying around basically prove this point. All of a sudden, everything you see around the house makes perfect sense. The decorations are still up because nobody was left to clean them up. The signage out on the patio reads, end of the world party, and welcome to the last party. It really was 
their last party. And judging from how hopeless their situation must have seemed, you can't really pass moral judgment on these people. They went out on their terms in the face of total calamity instead of slowly being picked off one by one, starving or being infected themselves. It's a somber moment and it really does a good job of setting the tone for the game. I really liked this part. This is also the first time you'll really notice the music and the sound design. The gentle silence clearly communicates the emotion and tone of the scene. As the wind gently blows through the trees and you make your way through the two dozen or so bodies lying next to the pill bottles which provided their relief, you can't help but feel as though you should be quiet and respectful in this. They're final resting place. Again, it's a great introduction to the rest of the game. Unfortunately, this won't last for long, and this is really the only time the game nails this tone. But going back to the setting and the condition of the house, because that's what I was bitching about before. I just wanted to say that this is something that a lot of games in the post-apocalyptic genre do. It's not just Dying Light 2. Once again, Fallout 4 is probably the worst offender of this, and it's mostly just because 200 years are supposed to have passed between when the bombs first fell and civilization practically ended, and the current time at which the player is going through and exploring the world. And you still find perfectly edible food lying around. You find whole houses still standing which were made of nothing but wood and haven't collapsed due to rot or neglect. There's no other way to put it other than that Bethesda Game Studios just doesn't seem to know how long a couple of centuries actually is. I mean in Dying Light 2 they're really stretching the bounds of what 10 years can do to a building, much less 200. The Last of Us certainly did a bit better with only 20 years having passed since the initial outbreak, and usually the environments reflect this pretty well, but here I can't help but feel as though this house in Dying Light 2 is just in too good a shape. I get it, it wouldn't be as emotionally moving to explore a half-collapsed house filled with debris, leaves, mud, and wood rot, but because this doesn't seem to fit in with the rest of the detail work in this section of the game, it causes me to question my perception of the rest of the level. Like I said, did other people live here afterward who kept it maintained for a while? Did they leave the bodies alone out of respect? There probably isn't an answer to these questions, and perhaps my asking them is intentional on the part of the developers because the answers I will formulate in my own mind will be more meaningful than if the writers themselves answered them clearly and concisely. Or maybe, and perhaps more accurately, I'm just reading too much into all of this. Regardless, this section has done a very good job of setting the tone, especially emotionally. For the rest of the game, I had high hopes, high expectations, and I just wanted to see this carried through. Unfortunately, it isn't, and the tone in the later sections of the game go from lighthearted fun to weirdly vampiric abilities in enemies, making it feel as though this is a fan fiction Twilight spinoff to a lighthearted action rom-com. Like seriously, this game hits every single one of those and it doesn't work well. And it's just really lame because they nailed this introductory section and then just totally dropped the ball. It's, it's really unfortunate because they're capable clearly of doing something much more somber, but instead they did what 
they did, which we'll get to. After we finish exploring the house, we get to sit down with Spike and drink a flat beer together as we overlook the vast landscape. Spike also mentions that he has set up a meeting for you at the radio tower with the man who knows information about whatever it is you're seeking which at this point we don't actually know. All we've been told is that Aiden, our player character, is trying to find somebody named Waltz. We don't know anything more. He doesn't even tell Spike. But we do know that we need to be at the top of the radio tower listening in at a specific frequency at dawn. So we have our next objective established. Spike says his goodbyes and leaves, apparently trusting in his survivor's intuition to leave you behind. So you do the same and leave him. It's in this section that you'll also fight your first zombies, without any assistance or scripted sections to protect you. They're wandering around the lake house down by the trail, and you quickly take them out with the first melee weapon that you're given by Spike. The enemy models look really good, they're all unique, and the melee combat feels pretty punchy. All a good start. You fight and climb your way all the way up to the radio tower, get your first boss fight in where you learn the basics of dodging and heavy attacks, and then you start the generator to unlock your first safe zone. These are places that you can use at night to cycle forward to the next morning since the zombies are far more active and aggressive at night. Again, this is a system you'll be very familiar with if you played the first game. Sometimes it's worth going out at night because there are much better chances of dropping legendary or rare loot, and you also get a lot more XP for surviving at night. So going out there, it's a risk reward, but it's often a fun one. However, if you just want to roll over to the next day, play it safe, and not take any unnecessary risks, you can just come to these safe zones, rest, and it'll cycle forward. Each of these safe zones also gives you a respawn point and access to a stash, where you can leave excess items and transfer them across the map without carrying them on your person. They also have large UV lights, which help to keep the creatures away. I will say these inventory boxes are now a staple of open world games, and they drive me absolutely crazy. All it does is increase the minutiae and tedium of exploration and item gathering. There is no quantifiable benefit to the player by adding this system other than just lengthening gameplay time. I get it, you want to feel grounded, you want to have systems which are more realistic, so you pick up a bunch of big weapons, you can't carry them all, so we have a carrying weight or we have a certain carrying capacity, so we put this stash system. I understand all that, but at the end of the day, the stash systems don't fix the problem of being realistic because all they do is introduce a system which teleports items across the map regardless of where you are doesn't make any sense that you can drop off 100 pounds of weaponry or crafting items in this location and then go all the way over here and pick them up without any cost added or issue. It's really dumb to me because it doesn't actually fix the problem. It just replaces the problem, the narrative problem, with another narrative problem that also brings in and introduces many other issues such as extreme tedium in the gameplay loop. Because what will happen is that players will go about the world finding things that they like and that they want to keep. So they will grab them up, keep them in their inventory until they reach a carrying capacity limit that forces them to go back to the stash. So then they go back to the stash, drop everything off, 
and then go back out in the world. So you're constantly bouncing as you explore the world back to that central point like spokes on a wheel. And that sucks because what they should be doing is just encouraging players to go around the wheel. No need to come back to the center. Maybe there's special crafting stations. Maybe there's merchants that can give you unique items that cause you to go back in willingly and voluntarily. But doing this thing where you are constantly forcing the player to return to centralized locations just because isn't good game design. It frustrates me and I see through it. It's just to pad out gameplay time. Either remove carrying capacity and just let people carry around whatever they want to carry or make it so you don't need to carry buckets upon buckets upon buckets of crafting items and weaponry to stand a chance against enemies. Like when you have durability systems in weapons, you run into this problem where it seems a little ridiculous that you're carrying 15 different weapons with you all at once as you're also parkouring across the city. So maybe then you just rework the durability system so that that dissonant point isn't a problem anymore. But regardless, all of this will be new to the player, as I mentioned, if you didn't play the first game. But if you did, this will all be extremely familiar because it's basically the same exact thing that we had before. Now, over the course of the next hour or so, you will meet the contact at the tower, fight your first humanoid enemies that are not infected. You'll encounter a brute zombie who bites you and be introduced to the main villain. And it's this character you've been seeking named Waltz. We don't know much about him at this point, but he seems to be in charge of a group called the Renegades. They're a sort of Mad Max-inspired tribe of crackheads and don't come off as particularly interesting. Their leader is looking for some sort of key that your contact has, but that contact gives it to you as he ushers you into the vents to escape. You then watch from your hiding place as your contact is killed while protecting you. And this happens repeatedly in the opening hours of the game. People will over and over and over again sacrifice their freaking lives to protect you for reasons. Like, cuz. <laughs> and it's really weird. Now, in this particular case, this key that Waltz is looking for is very important. So, he needs it. Apparently he's going to do bad things with it, which it turns out he will do bad things with it. So I can see why he'd be like, oh, this key, I need to get it out of here. You're my only opportunity for getting this out of here. So maybe that explains why he was basically willing to give his life to save yours and to distract the enemy long enough for you to get away. But still, it's it's odd. And it doesn't just happen here. It happens like three more times in the opening section of the game. Even when they don't know that you have the key, even when they think that you're infected, like all of this stuff that should not be happening happens just because the writers kept writing the protagonist into a corner. And then they're like, I don't know how to get somebody out of this. Uh, we'll have this character come and save them because they're nice. I, I don't know. It, it's it's really honestly quite bizarre. It was weird enough that I actually thought I was missing something and I spend a good amount of time on forums and on Reddit trying to hunt down reasons for characters doing this type of thing. And most of them don't seem to have an actual justification other than maybe they're just nice people and they don't like to see people put to death because they're infected or because they're strangers. But th that seems like a pretty lackluster answer considering this is literally in a post-apocalyptic wasteland. 
Regardless, you'll escape out of the subway tunnels and leave waltz in your dust. You're able to break into the city, at which point the civilians talk to each other and notice that you don't have a biomarker. This is apparently some sort of device you wear that indicates that you aren't currently infected or viral or significantly infected to the point where you are a danger. It's basically like the proof of vaccination card to be allowed to go into like a senior's bingo club. I haven't done that, but I've heard you need bingo cards for it. I heard it from a friend. It's also at this point that you'll feel that you're starting to turn. You feel the effects from the bite that you suffered earlier. And it's at this point that if the player wasn't aware already that they are turning into a zombie, it'll probably be sent clear home now. The civilians grab you and realize that this is happening. So the market guards where you are immediately call for your execution and begin stringing you up. But once again, a good Samaritan just shows up to save your life for my reasons. He ushers you away quickly, and when you ask who he is and why he's helping you, he refuses to answer. Again, the writers can't come up with an answer. Just don't tell the player. They don't need to know. <laughs> Soon enough, he gets you back to his base of operations, and he's able to give you a shot that seems to hold off the infection, at least for now. He then takes you up on the roof and explains a little bit of what's going on in addition to showing you the city in clear view for the first time. Those biomarkers that we mentioned earlier that you need to actually walk around inside the market and the city freely is effectively mandatory for anyone living here. They track the severity of infection in the wearer so that peacekeepers, a militaristic force that maintains order within the city, can quickly evaluate whether or not somebody is turning or has turned. According to your new friend, almost everybody in the city has one of these bracelets. They're extremely hard to get nowadays, so you can only really get one if you know the right people. And guess what? This random person who just saved your life for no comprehensible reason, he is one of the few people who has access to these biomarkers and he can get you one. Now, why do we need biomarkers? Well, the reason is because Aiden, the player character, is trying to get into an area called the fisheye, but no one's allowed in there without one of those bracelets, which once again establishes a long-term goal get the bracelet, and get to the fisheye. Over the last hour or so, some dialogue has revealed a little bit more about Aiden, specifically his true motivations for needing to get to Waltz and needing to get to the fishbowl. And the reason is because in the fishbowl is likely where your sister is being housed, who you were separated from years ago. Aiden doesn't know for sure if she's still alive, but your contact, the very same one that gave his life for you, said that she was in fact still alive inside that building. It's been so long that you don't even know what she looks like anymore, but in a quick cutscene that we see, it is revealed that Aiden and his sister share the same marks on their arms. So, inevitably, we will find someone alive, dead, or infected with these marks. As with every story, if it's communicated clearly to you, you will know that it will inevitably come back to be referenced later. Seriously, unless you're watching a detective film, a horror movie, or like a South Korean passion piece, these types of red herrings just don't exist. You won't be told things that have no impact on the story whatsoever because there's no reason to do it. It will effectively just confuse the player and the viewer, so you just don't do it. And in this case, we know that we've been communicating some things very, very clearly, so 
they're going to come back. Now, let's evaluate this story and where we are right now. We've gone through the most basic tutorials. We have an understanding of parkour, combat, dialogue, exploration, crafting, resource management, and even stealth. We also have long-term goals established with the large cityscape being laid out before us, reminding the player that they can go anywhere they want to within reason, and with the ultimate goal of finding our long-lost sister who is being held by an amoral doctor who is looking to do experiments on the infected. Altogether, it's pretty well done, and the stage has been adequately set. I know that some have criticized Aiden for being overly stiff and bland as a character, but I think that's very intentional. It's frankly extremely difficult to make the protagonist of a first-person game interesting and individualistic without affecting the player's capacity for immersion. In a game with a setting such as this, immersion is probably more important than having a really unique and personable protagonist. So instead, the writers and designers leave the character much more flat so that the player can project themselves onto them, and in this case, I think this was the right call. They do give Aiden a backstory, but they leave that backstory and Aiden's thoughts on many in-world events obfuscated and diluted. I absolutely understand why some people would find this uninteresting, but I think it's perfectly justifiable in this particular instance. All told, I think it's a really good setup for a game. There are a few hiccups here and there, there's a couple moments that made me roll my eyes, but all told, I'm actually pretty into it especially because the systems that have been presented are actually fairly robust. The free running is pretty good. The dialogue seems pretty well put together and written. The characters, though they're doing things that I wouldn't consider to be rational or reasonable for somebody to do in this world and in this setting, they're still likable and they're unique and it seems to be working pretty well. And coming off of those opening moments in that mansion, I'm still feeling pretty immersed and I'm feeling as though the tone that's been laid out here is much more solemn than the first game. I'm all in. But unfortunately, the coming hours are not going to maintain this same quality and it's going to start to get a little weird. We're going to talk about all of that right after a costume change. A few moments later. Boom! Costume change. You gotta love that quick little shifty shift. Here we go. Back to it. Over the coming hours, a lot happens. We learn, first of all, that our friend who saved our life is named Hakon, and he helps us obtain a biomarker, which allows us to smuggle ourselves into Villador's central district where the fisheye is located. Soon after arriving, though, you're captured by the peacekeepers and you meet the local officer, Aitor. And this is where there's like a huge departure in the focus of the game. Instead of just getting to the fisheye, we have to start dealing with a lot of these secondary tertiary characters that have their own motivations specifically taking over the city. And we have to help them in order to get to where we're going. And it just feels very video gamey. I don't know how else to put it. It just completely loses the plot literally, and diverts focus away to pad out gameplay time. It just kind of sucks. Specifically, we're tasked with finding the killer of this guy, Lucas. Along the way, we work with the leaders of the marketplace that we were almost executed in before, namely two people named Carl and Sophie. And there's a bunch of little decisions here that will eventually have an impact potentially on the ending of the game, though not a huge one because you can effectively override whatever decisions you make here. It'll make more sense when we talk about the actual endings when that comes at the end of the game's story. But for now, just understand that most of these missions are not about consequential decisions, they're more about building relationships with the main cast and the secondary cast. 
It's also pretty early on that we're introduced to the city alignment system, and this is actually pretty similar to the faction system in Assassin's Creed Odyssey. Basically, there are a bunch of zones scattered throughout the map, and when you clear one, you can assign it to one of two factions, the survivors or the peacekeepers. The peacekeepers will install traps all over the zone if it's assigned to them, which will prevent massive hordes of zombies from building up, which will make nighttime traversal significantly easier, allowing you to quickly grind out some XP. However, if you assign the zone to the survivors, they will install parkour helpers that make traversal a lot easier in general. Furthermore, the more facilities you assign to a given faction, the stronger that faction will get, which makes sense, which will empower them to provide better structures than before. This is a really interesting concept, but in execution it falls a bit flat, because you'll be selecting and designating these zones as you play through the game, but it doesn't actually feel as dynamic as I think the developers intended. In large part, this is because it doesn't really feel as though you are the one making the changes in the city, probably because these traps and parkour assists are dynamically added into the game without you seeing them. You don't get to build them, and you don't get to place them. It would be one thing if you used scrap that you collected throughout the map to craft different tools or zombie farming machines, at least then you would feel as though you were the one making the difference, but with this system, it just feels like the game will change some of the set dressing based on what you do. It doesn't actually feel quantifiably different from area to area. And this is all compounded by the issue I mentioned before, which might not initially seem like an issue. And that is specifically that the stronger that each faction gets, in other words, the more zones that they acquire and are assigned to, the better the equipment will be in the next area that you assign to them, which means that most players will just end up assigning every zone to one faction, which my guess would be probably the survivors because parkour is a lot of fun and having an easier time at night dealing with zombies isn't actually fun. It's actually removing a major feature of the game, which is that nighttime exploration is effectively hard mode. It's where you go if you want to challenge. But I feel like I should also say that my prior hypothetical is not actually a suggestion. I'm really glad that this game doesn't fall victim to the same tropes that most big AAA games have recently done with major settlement systems inspired by Fallout 4 and big zombie destroying machines that would be out of place even in a Dead Rising game. Furthermore, I really hate having to run around the map collecting bland and ubiquitous scrap to craft things when it could have been justified in the story that members of each community are collecting the scrap on my behalf and perhaps it just takes in-game time to acquire those materials. One of the things I like about Dying Light is that it's relatively grounded as a series while it still gives you the access to the raw sort of fun that you get in more campy styles of zombie games. It's usually able to strike a pretty good balance. And so while this city alignment system doesn't feel fully fleshed out, it's a welcome addition, though in my mind it doesn't really add anything. In effect, it's just a wash. It doesn't really add anything, it doesn't really detract from the game's experience, it's just basically another button prompt that most players are going to perform the same exact way regardless of who they are because again parkour is fun while making other sections of the game easier isn't. Now a lot happens in the coming hours of the game after this initial frustration with some of the local leadership of these different factions but I think the most important scene is this one where Waltz confronts Aiden to try and acquire the GRE key that 
Aiden stole from him earlier, or rather took from the guy that gave his life for Aiden for no reason. Specifically in this sequence, Waltz demonstrates a bunch of supernatural abilities for reasons. Like I get it, it's a zombie game. It's not gonna be super realistic. I understand that, I can appreciate that. Even so, this felt so out of place it's just weird. It made me think that Waltz was some sort of vampire character. He's doing the same moves that they do in what we do in the shadows when they like fly around the city trying to eat like french fries and pizza. It's so weird to me. Like whenever you're playing a game or reading a book or watching a film or a TV show and you pause and go, what is happening? That's not good. That's bad. And honestly, it kind of makes me take this all a lot less seriously. Like, if Waltz was a bad guy who is powerful and capable of dealing massive damage to different communities, of overwhelming the social infrastructure of these different factions, just by power of will, by his charisma, by his political influence within the different factions, by his wealth, whatever it may have been, that's much more respectable than that he just can punch really hard and sort of jump like a vampire. It's it's one of the things that perhaps is counterintuitive, but relying on supernatural abilities to make your villain imposing and scary doesn't actually achieve that goal. All it does is make it seem like you're doing a sort of deus ex machina to fix your story or solve it, and it effectively is just a shortcut. It doesn't actually do what you think it's going to do. After we meet Waltz, however, we are introduced to Lawan, who is another character that will be following us through the last half of the game or so, and will be very important as we progress. And we also are able to retain the GRE key to gain access to the central district fully, which also kicks in the power for that section of the city, which turns on all of these vents and fans, which we'll be able to use the paraglider with. During this section of the game, you're tasked with your long-term goal being that you have to restart the radio broadcast from the tallest tower in all of Villador, which seems really weird, but it, it's something you are just tasked with doing by the factions. And because you need information they have and can't get it any other way, you oblige them and have to go along with it. Like, again, I get it. It's a video game. There are some tasks that you are going to be demanded to complete in order to progress through the story. Otherwise, there's not much of a gameplay loop here at all. But I can't help but feeling as though the justification for these actions and activities is just not very well thought out. It really does just feel like you're being sent on random rabbit chases because the developers were like, okay, well, we need to to lengthen this. This section needs to be eight hours long, so we'll have him go do that, and then we'll tell him to do that, and then we'll make him go there, and then climb that, and then flip a switch, and then that'll let him go there. It, it just isn't very inspired. It's not very creative. I mean, we can run down other options and other things they could have done, but effectively then we're just rewriting the entire game for the writers and for the developers, and that's not really what these videos are for. They're for making critiques and bringing up issues with the story, and in this case I think it's pretty clear that what Dying Light 2 is doing in this case is just not very interesting. Furthermore, it falls prey to one of the tropes that I really struggle with in games like this, specifically open world adventure games, and that is that you are so often tasked with finding some other person you haven't met to solve your problem. 
And that's what you have to do time and time again until eventually you reach the credits of the game. One of the reasons I like something like The Last of Us Part Two and the way they structured that storyline around the gameplay and vice versa is that it's up to you, the player character, to actually go and solve their own problems. You're not trying to reach this person who can help you do this thing, who might have information you need to do this and that. It's the difference between a really well-written narrative in a video game and the sort of fetch quest random zigzag pattern to the end that we see in games like Dying Light 2, Fallout 4, and the like. As I mentioned earlier, we get access to the paraglider around this time, and I know I sound like a pessimistic, cynical asshole. I'm, I'm gonna stick with it. It controls like absolute ass. It drops really, really quickly. It doesn't travel through the air very quickly, though, at the same time, so it's just kind of like a steady descender instead of an actual glider like calling this thing a glider is pretty generous to me it's just really unfortunate because i was looking forward to this thing for so long because i saw it in some of the reviews and in some of the trailers i was ready for it and then i got it and i was like oh well, this this kind of sucks <laughs> It also takes an uncomfortably long time to actually open it and use it. Basically, when you leap from a ledge, you have to hold down X or spacebar or something, maybe E on keyboard. I don't remember. The point is you have to hold down the key and then you open it up and use it. And it's such a long time that I can't even count the number of times I leapt from a ledge only to barely open the glider as my feet crushed against the concrete beneath me. It's it's just not as smooth as it should be. As I've said before, perception is often more important than reality, especially when we're critiquing a player's experience in a game. If a player thinks that something is wrong, something's wrong. If a player thinks they've encountered a bug, it's a bug. Whether or not it's a bug or a feature is kind of lost at that point. It doesn't matter because the player's interpretation of their experience is that something's off and something's wrong and you need to take that seriously. But regardless, hours and hours later, after many tedious missions, fetch quests and bloat, after turning on the radio tower at the top of the tallest peak of the map and assigning the broadcast abilities to one of the two factions, we finally arrive at the conclusion of the game. Aiden confronts Waltz, his former torturer, who reveals the obligatory plot twist. And that is that Mia, the one who Aiden is convinced is his sister and that all of his flashbacks have been about and that he's been pursuing this whole time and that has been the justification for every gameplay system and activity we've participated in, is actually Waltz's daughter. Apparently, he's been trying to find a cure for her over the last 15 years to prevent her from turning fully into a zombie. Now, I feel like this was done to try and humanize the villain right before the conclusion of the game. I I just, I, I don't think it works though. I was more distracted at how stupid and contrived the plot twist felt in the moment. Listen, I'm okay with having a plot twist at the end of a story that calls everything into question. In fact, I love it. There's nothing quite like going through a story with one opinion of the character only to have that opinion totally overturned since they've been humanized. 
hashtag The Last of Us Part 2. But that humanization takes time. Why do you think half of The Last of Us Part 2 was spent doing that with Abby? You can't just come in, say a couple lines of dialogue, and expect the players to fall in love with this new character or to be like, I don't know, guys, I think they're onto something. I think they're the good guys. <laughs> like, they're not gonna, it's not gonna happen. You gotta take some time to do it. I mean, hell, even with The Last of Us Part 2, a lot of players that got through the whole game didn't think Naughty Dog had pulled it off by the end. They still were like, well, I get that Abby is like somewhat likable and has a personality trait, friends, family, blah, blah, blah. But still, F this girl because she killed Joel. I don't care. I, I I just don't like her. And that's okay. It's not easy to turn opinions around even over the course of like 12 to 15 hours of gameplay and narrative beats. So it's definitely not going to happen in the span of about 30 seconds over the course of like two sentences. In the case of Dying Light 2, I just feel like this was something drummed up by the writers towards the end of the story's writing. As far as I can recall, there aren't any major signifiers that this is the case prior to the reveal, making it feel as though it comes out of left field entirely. Perhaps there are lines of dialogue spoken, plot points established, and relationships shown which would suggest that this was the case all along, but as far as I can remember, it's not the case. And even if there is dialogue or other things in the story that would signal this plot twist ahead of time, the fact that I can't remember any of them, I think, shows that the execution of those signifiers was quite poor. I mean, I take pretty extensive notes while playing through these games, and I don't have anything during my run-through of the story that made me pause and consider whether or not Waltz had a more interesting relationship with one of these characters than previously suggested. It, it just didn't happen. But regardless of how bizarre this reveal is, the ending fight is established, and the scene is set. You see, Waltz needed to get to the X-13 facility to try and save Mia, who doesn't have much time left. I know, quite convenient that she's about to die at the exact moment that the final boss fight happens. We're just going to move past that. The problem is that Waltz needed to restore power to the facility in order to continue the treatment of his daughter. And when he turned the facility's power back on, it reinstated and reinitiated a failsafe protocol that would effectively launch a plethora of missiles at the city of Villador, destroying everything and killing everyone. No doubt, it would certainly prove devastating for the city and would likely kill every single person there. As I just mentioned, this plot twist with Waltz feels contrived, and I think that this is the reason that they came up with it. You see, Waltz could shut the power back down for the facility and prevent the missiles from destroying the city, but he doesn't want to do that because it would likely result in Mia's death. She doesn't have long, and this is probably his last chance to save her. Effectively, his choice is between the city and his daughter. So he's choosing his daughter. So now it kind of makes sense that the writers wrote themselves into this corner. They set the stage up in this way where Waltz was going to do this and then the missiles were going to set to launch, but then he has the choice between turning the missiles off because we have to have the player have an option to turn the missiles off to save the city. So we are placed in this spot. Oh, we'll make it so he's actually trying to save his daughter. And then you're really questioning whether or not he's actually a really bad guy. But it just, it doesn't work. And I think the problem is that players are just simply not given enough time to process it, like I mentioned before. Likely, players are still thinking of Waltz the way that they've been thinking about him for the entire story. And that is that he's a big bad guy who does bad stuff because he's a bad vampire dude. Listen, you've spent 
the entire game trying to save the same girl that he is trying to save. But this reveal simply doesn't have enough time to simmer and render with the audience. As a result, the feeling for most players at this point in the game, I think, is going to be that they have to take on this bad guy who's trying to destroy the city with a missile attack. Yeah, there's something else going on with his daughter and needing the facility's power to save her, blah, 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 but that's secondary in the player's mind because of the way that they've been conditioned to think about the villain for the whole game's runtime. And this is why pacing's important in these games. I know it's one of those catch-all terms that game critics might throw out. Oh, the pacing's bad, which often is just code for like, I don't really like this game, but I don't know how to phrase it. Like, let's be real. That's what it is most of the time. But in this case, pacing actually is really important. It's not just a matter of how much bloat is in the game, but it's also important to have enough time between major plot points so that the player can process them. Think of the original Last of Us game, a title which has possibly the best pacing of any narrative game in the last 10 years. Every time there's a major emotional hit, there's a huge shift in tone and energy that resets the player's emotional compass. When Joel's daughter dies in the first few minutes of the game, you're given a montage of the fall of society and then Joel wakes up in an empty bedroom alone. No music, just quiet solace. Years ago, I took a playwriting class in college, and it was just to basically learn the essentials of writing a quality story. And it was pretty interesting. I wrote a bunch of plays and got critiqued on them by some playwrights. It was it was a good time, honestly. But one of the things that the professor talked about was this idea of build and drop is what he called it, at least. I'm sure there's a more technical term for it. But it was basically just the idea that you build emotional tension you build the stakes, you build everything to this emotional peak, and then you drop it. And then you let the audience just take it in and think about it and process it. Because after you have this really intense moment, once you go silent, there might be things happening on stage. There might be things happening on screen if it's a video game or a TV show or a movie. But with that silence, if you keep the energy low, if you keep the tone where it needs to be, people can process, people can think about what they've already seen. And then you can build it up again, build it up again, all the way to that precipice, and then you drop it again. And that's the really quality pace that you'll notice in some of the most well-written and well-crafted stories that you can certainly think of. And in fact, now that I've mentioned it, and you're thinking about some of the big movies that you like to watch and enjoy, chances are, this type of technique is implemented in them, whether you're looking at the new Batman movie or something like I, Tonya. No joke, I love I, Tonya. I It's a tremendous movie. Like, good God. If you haven't seen I, Tonya, watch it. It's hilarious and also phenomenally well-performed and written. It is so good and a true story. But regardless, you have your fight with Waltz. It's a big boss fight in a large arena that's perfectly fine. It's not great. In fact, it bugged out for me a couple of times. Once you defeat him, though, you will have a choice to make. Luan tells the player that she wants to blow up the facility to prevent the missiles from launching and destroying the entire city. If you agree to do this, it will kill her. But she's willing to do it to save the countless civilians who will be caught in the explosion. So you are tasked with choosing between saving Mia 
or Lawan. If Aiden saves Lawan, he gets her out of X-13, while Hakon will get Mia out. That is, if you spared him earlier in the game when you have the choice of letting him live or die. However, you will also fail to stop the missile strike, which will result in the entire city being destroyed and most of the people dying within it. In addition, Mia will still die. The game ends as Aiden leaves the city to live out life as a pilgrim, just as he started the game. Now, if Aiden decides to save Mia, Hakon saves Luan. Again, only if you spared him earlier, otherwise she just dies. And then Aiden gets Mia out on time. The facility is destroyed in the explosion that's set off and the city is saved. However, Mia dies shortly after from the same illness that her father was trying to save her from, and the city will end up being controlled by whichever faction you sided with in the main story. Most of this depends on which faction you allowed to control the radio tower that you were tasked with resetting earlier in the game. This is why I said earlier that you can certainly make your choices very intently early on in the game with which faction you help in which way, but most of this, as far as I can tell, just comes down to which faction you sided with when it came to the radio tower at that particular junction in the game. It didn't actually matter what you did prior to that, so all of those choices were overridden. However, regardless of which options you choose, Aiden will still leave the city to live out the rest of his life as a pilgrim. There's also a secret ending you can get. If you spared Hakon and choose to save Luan, he rescues her from the rubble, Mia dies, the city's destroyed, and everything generally goes to hell. However, honoring the agreement you make in the first few hours that you know him, Hakon and Aiden leave the city together as pilgrims to continue exploring the wastes. Lawan is asked if she wants to join, but she says no. Now, I get it. Aiden's a pilgrim. It's a way of life. I understand that. He was never going to settle down in the city, and it would be unreasonable to hold the game to a standard where we expect that to happen. But even so, I'm still left with a strange feeling when I look back at all of these ending options. It just feels weird that after all these connections, relationships, and all the hard work you've put into saving the city, Aiden just leaves. I'll admit that I don't have a good reason for feeling this way, but nonetheless, I still do feel this way. In addition, all of the endings are effectively contingent on how you made three choices. Namely, whether or not you kill or spare Hakon, who you give the VNC Tower to, and which of the two girls you choose to personally save at the end. These are all big choices, don't get me wrong, but I still can't help but feel a little underwhelmed at the end of this. No matter what you do, Mia will still die. Your one overarching goal for the entire game, that is, to save the girl you believe is your sister, cannot be achieved no matter how hard you try, how hard or well you play, or what decisions you make. It's ultimately frivolous. Sure, we can excuse it as being a commentary on human existence itself in a post-apocalyptic world, but that doesn't change the fact that for a video game, it's remarkably lame. Even just an alternative ending where you're allowed to let Waltz complete Mia's treatment and destroy the city in the process would have been a welcome addition. 
but as far as I could tell, the extent of the player's ability to achieve that ending is constrained to roleplay. You just let Waltz kill you, and then you close down the game and move on, having sacrificed yourself so that the person who you believe is your sister can live. At least then, the player would have some choice in how Aiden's driving goal is achieved or abandoned, but at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter. We can nitpick branching endings in a video game all we want, but it really doesn't achieve anything at the end of the day. Like at all. What does matter is the player's feeling after completing an experience that takes dozens of hours and lots of blood, sweat, and tears. And in speaking for myself, I felt underwhelmed, and as though this mission I had been embarking on for these aforementioned dozens of hours was all for nothing. No matter what I did, I will end up leaving the city alone, unless I choose a very specific set of options that damns the entire city and all of its civilians to death. Overall, I just find the story really underwhelming. It's not bad, per se. I would say the introduction of Waltz as a sort of supernatural character is bad, and I would say the over-reliance on coincidence and characters being really nice to you for no conceivable reason other than that it's convenient in the moment for the writers is bad, but all told, I think it's serviceable. Like, it gets you through the city, it gets you to different areas of the map, and it introduces cool gameplay systems in a way that feels relatively organic and natural. But this is what happens. When you have a story with branching options, when you put a lot of effort into the narrative, and when you make that narrative a central theme and piece of the experience, you need to be ready for people to critique it and to look at it critically, because that's what you are effectively asking for. In this case, I feel like it's pretty good, it's certainly not bad, but it could have done a lot more, a lot better. Granted, Techland doesn't have a ton of experience in this space doing this type of thing, but I hope they grow better. And apparently their next game being a fantasy RPG with a bunch of devs from The Witcher 3, I think it actually could work out pretty well. So we'll just have to see what the next game is like and if they learn from their prior mistakes. I would say this is a great start, and while I certainly was extremely negative during this section of the video, I wouldn't call the whole thing a total disaster. I think it's pretty good, especially the early hours when they're setting the stage, but it sort of falls apart at the end. But now let's talk about the gameplay. And to do that, I need another costume change. Magic spin move. Poof. Boom, costume change, gotta love that. Pretty cool. Now our discussion of the story over the last section might have seemed a little terse initially, and I totally get that, because it seems as though we just discussed a few basic points of the story, and then the story's over and we're moving on to gameplay. That's because that's kind of what this game demands. The simple truth is that there's just not that much to talk about. The story is very straightforward. You basically are looking for who you consider to be your sister. You run around the city performing various tasks for various faction leadership to get access to the one location where she is. You get there, find out that she's actually the daughter of the bad guy and that he's probably not actually that bad of a guy because he's trying to help his now we realize daughter, and then you kill him, she dies, and you leave the city. That really is the story. Like, you meet some people along the way who are relatively interesting here and there for various reasons, but it's so minimal that 
the discussion of it wouldn't go beyond what I just did. I could tell you about Lawan, how she's sad because her lover boyfriend was clearly somebody she was very closely attached to. And now something mysterious happened to him and he's no longer with us. But like that, that is all it is like the very description of it ends the total quantifiable discussion. So any discussion of it beyond that would just be excessive in my mind. In other words, this is my attempt to keep this video relatively lean and to avoid endlessly discussing things that probably aren't that interesting. If you are really interested in the backstory of individual side characters, there's certainly a lot of content out there for you to check out and you could play the game and find it all out yourself. But I didn't find any of it notable enough to discuss further, whether praising it or critiquing it, because it's all just kind of meh and meh stuff is the hardest to critique because it's like it's not good it's not bad there's nothing to praise there's nothing to criticize it's just kind of there but one topic that does have a lot more meat on its bones is the gameplay this is definitely where the primary focus of the development staff went and it's for a good reason dying light has been known for a long time to have really interesting parkour mechanics relatively sturdy melee combat interesting crafting mechanics as well and the world exploration when implemented with the parkour system is pretty cool <laughs> like seriously there's nothing quite like free running through a city jumping off of zombies onto rooftops sliding down i mean it's like a zombie assassin's creed in first person and it's great i really enjoy it but if you played the first game then you probably are all too familiar with the systems that we're going to be discussing and that's because there really hasn't been a lot that's been changed from the first game over to the second. This is a sequel through and through, and they focus on what works and the most fun elements of Dying Light 1, and they try to introduce some new systems and ideas into the sequel, but at the end of the day, they really are sticking pretty fervently to the first game, and whether or not it's worth you playing over the first game, it's gonna be more up to you as an individual because it really does feel like just Dying Light 1 with a new coat of paint and then this long sort of lackluster story. Now the gameplay loop itself is relatively simple. During the main campaign of the game, you will be discussing various topics with NPCs. They will tell you to perform some action. Usually it's a fetch quest or you going to some location to clear it out or to flip a switch of some sort. So you'll do that, return to the NPC, after some big combat encounter or escape sequence where you are tasked with free running through a very complicated structure and then the process repeats and it's not bad don't get me wrong i think this is perfectly serviceable but one of the most frustrating things coming off of the first game is that a lot of the mechanics you will have grown to know and love after playing that game are locked behind skill trees. And I guess I should clarify, it's not really a skill tree, it's more of a skill branch because everybody's gonna end up in the same exact loadout by the end of the game with all of the same abilities. So calling it a skill tree, which implies that you can go down different branches and find a different route specific to your playstyle, it doesn't really apply here because everybody will end up in the same location. And the unfortunate reality is that this also prevents co-op from feeling really coherent and cohesive because different players will have different abilities unlocked depending on where they are in the story because so many abilities are locked behind story beats, not just 
skill checks and skill levels. For example, the aforementioned glider. It's locked behind a specific story beat with Lawan. If you haven't gotten to that story beat, you don't have the glider. So if you're playing co-op with somebody who has the glider and they're floating and bouncing around the city, you're going to be left behind and you're going to end up with a very disjointed cooperative experience because of it. Now, perhaps there is an option to bring everybody's abilities down to the same level that I just happened to miss while experimenting with the co-op. Or maybe this is just how it is. And if you don't have the ability, you're just out of luck. In fact, this is what it was like in the first game. For example, I remember all of my friends doing this drop kick move, which was super overpowered in the first game. You could drop kick zombies from a very far distance and they would just go flying. You could kick them off buildings and bridges. It was great, but that was locked behind a specific level check. So if you didn't have that unlocked, you just couldn't use it. Thankfully, it was a pretty low level. It was like four or something. So it wasn't that hard to get to, but it still made you feel like you were a second class citizen compared to all of your friends. This time around, there are very important parkour mechanics and abilities that are locked behind these skill checks. The glider is one of them, but there's also other abilities such as improved stamina, allowing you to climb up higher and farther, the ability to vault off of zombies and other moves such as the double jump, which isn't really a double jump it's just kind of like a longer single jump and many other abilities as well now granted this only really is egregiously obvious in co-op when players skill levels are disjointed and not exactly at the same point but it's also very obvious if you've played the first game and then you come into the sequel expecting to be able to use similar moves or at least most of the same moves you used in the first game. And you'll realize that you have to grind through a relatively boring story in order to unlock those movesets. It's just kind of frustrating. Like every sequel has to deal with this, right? Like you have abilities in the original game that players are familiar with. So for the sequel, you want to introduce new abilities and not force the player to just relearn everything they already know because that's just going to end up being boring. It's the same reason why it wouldn't be that interesting to have every single Batman video game retell the origin story of Batman. It's like, we know, we're familiar, you don't need to go over it again. We're very familiarized with this. But in a gameplay context, it would be something like God of War 2018, where Kratos learns to use the Blades of Chaos all over again. It wouldn't make sense for them to lock that out of the player's grasp in the sequel, only to have it be another unlockable checkpoint a quarter of the way through the story. Like, I get it. If he wants to put the Blades away and only rip them out when he really needs them, like was the case in the first game that makes sense narratively and i'm okay with that but to have it be just another checkpoint in a skill tree doesn't really make sense or we could point out an example like spider-man miles morales where spider-man 2017 was really really good really crisp had tons of abilities tons of different things you could do for the sequel spin-off that they wanted to do with Miles Morales, they wanted to introduce new abilities and systems as well, but they needed to retain the same movesets and abilities from the original game so it didn't feel like you were just playing a reskin version of it and like you were growing with Spider-Man, with Miles Morales, and your experience was evolving as well. It's just frustrating to have all of these movesets, abilities, and to have in your brain the idea that you can perform some actions such as a big pole vault or or vaulting off of a zombie onto a roof of a car and then onto the building only to realize that you haven't reached that checkpoint yet and you haven't unlocked that ability. Now transitioning to gear. 
This time around, like the first game, there's tons of different options, tons of different effects that each piece can have, and it all seems pretty specialized. But unfortunately, at least through the main run of the game, I never felt as though it was truly impactful. You can have weapons with fire effects, shock effects, all sorts of different things that they can dish out on enemies, but I never felt as though when I was going up against one particular enemy type, I needed to use one particular type of damage or one specific weapon over another. It always just felt like, well, whichever one has the highest DPS I'll use and I'll just go about my business. Maybe there is a system which makes certain enemies more vulnerable to different types of damage, but if there is a system like that, it didn't feel impactful enough for me to really pursue it or capitalize on it. And speaking of weapons, there's a weapon durability system in this game, which is so frustrating to me because these weapon durability systems are like the plight of open world adventure games right now. They are so stupid and every game seems to be doing it drives me crazy. Like this is subjective and I get why they do it. It encourages further exploration so that as you run out of weapons because they break down, you have to continue exploring to find new ones to replace the ones that just broke. And in some cases, this can actually be a good thing that encourages exploration. But a lot of the time, if it's not implemented well, it just ends up being more tedious than anything. I would say probably the best example of a game that's done this recently is Breath of the Wild. And I say best because it's kind of the best of a bunch of crap. I, I don't think this is generally a good design practice, but I think because Breath of the Wild did it and was still such a good game, so many other studios since have tried to implement it and make it a focal point of the gameplay design, completely missing the point that Breath of the Wild wasn't good because of the weapon degradation system, it was good in spite of the weapon degradation system. Because what inevitably happens is the player will have a swath of different weapons that they can choose from for any given encounter. They have various durability ratings, so some of them can withstand more damage output than others. But what will happen is the highest damage weapons, the ones that are most rare and valuable to the player, they will sit in your inventory indefinitely because you don't want to break them in case you're about to hit some really difficult encounter. So you just end up hoarding high-level weapons and churning through low-level ones, which forces you to go back to low-level areas or to mid-level areas to grind out more disposable weapons while preserving and retaining the really high-power ones for big encounters when you feel like you'll need them. And I just don't think that's very fun or satisfying. I think it's much better to have a few weapons which the player really cares about and grows to know, understand, and appreciate and then give the player the ability to either upgrade them or to repair them using items that they find out in the world while exploring. I think that's a much better option. One of the games that's done weapon degradation much, much better would be something like Red Dead Redemption 2. It's hard to say what they did in that game is directly analogous to what Breath of the Wild did, but it's still relatively similar. You see the weapons degrade and have condition ratings, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the gun will fully break and be unusable. You'll still be able to use it, but certain stats like its damage output, its accuracy will all be depleted. And in this case, the game compares it to being clean. So you clean the weapon, in effect, repairing the durability of it, making it perform the way that it should. I think a system like that is much better than just having a ton of different weapons that all can break for various reasons. And in the case of Dying Light 2, it's 
unnecessarily complicated how this system works and how you can get around weapon degradation or repair your weapons in any given instance. You see, players can repair their weapons, but it's pretty bizarre. You see, you can only repair a weapon for as many times as it has mod slots. One slot, you can repair it once. Two slots, twice, etc. Specifically, you need to apply a modifier to that weapon in that slot that has the repair modification ability, which will add 50 durability back onto the weapon in effect repairing it. Now in addition, there is a grip modification you can apply to certain weapons that's called reinforcement. And this thing, at least at launch, was supposed to be the solution to durability, at least if players wanted to avoid the durability draining on a weapon that they really care about. So they added this grip mod called reinforcement, which will reduce by 10% the depletion of durability on a weapon. And this particular modification has 10 different levels allowing you to technically go up to 10 out of 10, which would be 100% depletion prevention. But it doesn't actually completely prevent depletion because it still reduces. And all of the research I did through various forums and Twitter posts shows that even when you have this modification fully leveled out, it still reduces durability just really slowly. So it sort of does the job, but not actually how it should and maybe this has been fixed in a patch or something since i wrote this section of the script and i just haven't caught on to it so maybe this isn't a problem but at launch and in the months following launch this was still in the game not fixed whether it's a problem or not i don't know maybe it's a bug maybe it's a feature who can tell now there's also something called the korek charm which in order to use it you need to find the blueprint for it so that you can craft it this thing is found in a very obscure location near the top of the vnc tower so it's going to be a late game item for most players once crafted this thing adds 500 durability to whatever weapon it's applied to pretty powerful and because you can craft this pretty much on the fly you can just throw it on weapons as they get fully depleted in really difficult combat encounters which totally changes the pace of combat and weapon swaps and the whole thing it just totally changes it so like this is literally a game changer now if all of this sounds pretty convoluted and complicated it's because it is i mean for most players my guess would be that they'll throw some modifications on weapons and then once the weapon depletes in durability even further instead of unequipping mods and then trying to swap things out applying the correct charm blueprint and uh making everything maxed out i think most players are probably just going to dump the weapon and then look for a new one and that's just because of how complicated they made this like if it was just simply oh you can repair the weapon using these items okay players will understand that that's pretty simple if it was just go to this shop in town in the marketplace in the bazaar and you can repair the weapon fully from there and that's how you repair weapons it's not this plus all these different systems it's just this is how it's done i just think they made it so overly complicated in this case it didn't have to be this complicated and all it will do is cause players to disconnect like whenever you add a gameplay system you have to ask yourself okay why why? Whenever you have a new step the player has to complete to accomplish some objective, you are introducing friction. And that friction has to be justified because if it isn't, it's just going to lead to players feeling like they are being tasked with 
tedium for sake of padding out gameplay time or making things overly complicated. And in this case, I really don't know why they had to tie weapon durability and repairs to these modifications. It just isn't necessary. Like you can have modifications and then you can have weapon repairs and durability completely separate. They don't need to be intertwined. I just don't get why they had to do this. It just doesn't make sense to me. But enough complaining about that. I think I've made it pretty clear that I just think that this is overly tedious and complicated. And while you can get the hang of it pretty quickly when you're playing the game, it just isn't as intuitive as it really should be. Like they've spent how many years developing this game and this is what they came out with. Like the whole point of it is to streamline and refine experiences over time, not make them more complicated and convoluted than they were the last time around. You know, The Witcher 3, your weapons break, you get repair kits. Pretty simple, straightforward, easy. There's a repair system where you can go to blacksmiths, makes sense, and have them repair stuff or you use these repair kits and that's it. Easy peasy, nothing too complicated. You don't have to apply a bunch of different gems and things which repair the sword over time and do it like that's just overly complicated. Just keep it simple, streamlined, easy. Now, one thing I did really like in Dying Light 2 that I did not really expect to see or to enjoy were the side quests. Like they've actually put a good amount of effort into the side content and the various tasks and chores you can complete for people around the map. A lot of them are just going to be fetch quests, granted, but they all have stories and narratives that back them up, which is, in my view, usually enough to justify them. Perhaps my favorite was when this love-struck man asks you to get a dress and perfume for a girl he has a crush on, so that he can ask her out. It's kind of cute. It is just a fetch quest. You're just going to be running to this store, waiting till nighttime, finding the dress and then the perfume, and then you go about your business after returning it. But it was fun. It was cute. And there was a story that made it unique. You know, it's not the Preston Garvey, which can we just appreciate that? It's such a weird name. Like say it out loud right now, like pause the video or don't pause it. Just say Preston Garvey. Even just like move your mouth to the Preston Garvey. Like, you know what I'm talking about, this guy. How about the settlement problem? Another settlement needs our help. I'll mark it on your map. Preston Garvey. What a weird name. It just sounds weird as I say it. But anyway, like, these side quests, the point is, these side quests are not Preston Garvey demanding, you know, a settlement needs your help, where it's all just dynamic, never-ending, isn't interesting or unique. These actually have some heart and soul and thought put into them that make them individualistic and I, I think that's a good thing but all this would be for naught if the core loop mechanic which is exploration and free running weren't good and i have to say it's actually pretty well done it takes a little getting used to especially because the jump button is going to be routed to right bumper by default if you're playing on controller which for me always caused my brain a little frustration for the first 15 minutes of gameplay or so but once you're in it it actually feels pretty fluid. You'll pretty quickly get a feeling for distances, how far you can jump, where you can grab onto items, how far you can swing, etc, etc. And I gotta be honest, nothing quite beats the feeling of climbing up a big structure and reaching its precipice while feeling as though you shouldn't really be allowed to get up there. It's that sense of danger and freedom that's so hard to replicate in video games, but Dying Light 
does it really well. And again, it's a really good thing because very few games are able to pull this off. Games like Breath of the Wild and Spider-Man come to mind as examples. The developers just give you so much freedom of exploration that when you use it, you almost feel like you're cheating. Like you shouldn't be allowed to do the things you're doing, but you're doing them and the game's allowing you to, so it must be okay. It's a weird feeling, but it's one that Dying Light 2 captures in addition to all of these other amazing games. And one of the things that makes that exploration even better is when there's unique items that are worth finding and exploring for. Otherwise, you're just kind of running around the city for no real reason, which was one of my frustrations with Spider-Man 2017. If you recall, when that game came out, I actually had a lot of problems with it because the extent of the justification for exploring beyond just simply for its own sake, because swinging was fun, were like backpacks and little collectibles that I didn't find particularly worthwhile collecting. One of the reasons Elden Ring works so well as an open world is because there's so many objects and items out there in that world that are worth having, you feel justified in exploring. In Dying Light 2, there's also really cool interesting things to find, such as the Korak charm that we discussed just a few minutes ago, or many other charms that have blueprints out there, weapon modification blueprints, you name it, it's out there, you just gotta explore and look. I will say at times it felt as though they were hidden intentionally difficult, like it wasn't a natural discovery process. It was almost like you had to climb a building and then look in the most obscure location possible to find certain objects. It's a small distinction between like the open world design of something like Red Dead Redemption 2 where things are hidden in a naturalistic way versus this case where it feels like they were hidden by a game developer. It's a small distinction, but it's one that I think is important to note. Now we touched on co-op for a brief moment earlier when discussing different abilities that certain players might have compared to their friends, and I want to delve into it a little bit more here. Now in my mind, this is where the original game truly excelled. This is where I spent most of my time with the game, playing with my friends back in the day, and it kept the game going for years and years after launch, bringing in new players to the community, such as myself. It really helps build a community, and it keeps a game alive for years after it launches. A lot of people would probably have left dying light dying in a corner if they couldn't play it with their friends years after launch. And I gotta say in the sequel it's actually a surprisingly smooth experience. Considering this is a lot more complicated to get working than just the base game, especially with the free running systems, I was expecting it to be a bit of a shit show if I'm being honest, but it was actually really solid. We played for extended periods of time without any drops or major hitches, at least as far as co-op is concerned. As I mentioned at the top, my buddy Caleb, he was running into some technical issues with the game performance on his end, but he had that happen whether he was in single player or co-op. It always happened when he booted up the game, so it wasn't really something that I would attribute to the co-op. And it works pretty much the way you would expect. If you're going through story sequences, the party leader will take charge and their progress will be carried through. But party members will be able to vote for various dialogue options, which is kind of fun. Also, players who reach objectives first can give others the ability to teleport to their location. It's certainly convenient when working through the story, but I will admit it can be cheesed heavily when doing nighttime runs for XP, allowing you to basically get out of trouble quickly. And I will say it's definitely not written, the main story that is, to be played through co-op. It's written for a single player experience. So if you are thinking of going through the whole game with a friend, I would probably hazard against it just because there's a lot of cutscenes 
where it's clear they're talking to one person. It's never done in a way that leaves it open to possibly discussing to multiple people. If that bothers you, it's going to drive you crazy. If it doesn't, you probably won't mind. But I think the most fun I had with co-op was doing these nighttime runs with friends. This is what we had the most fun doing back in the day with the original game. And so I wanted to test it. I wanted to get to a level four out of four chase at night and see how crazy hectic it got. Because I remember being chased by all sorts of brutes and it being incredibly difficult to keep up with all of the zombies chasing us. You're always just an inch from death. It was one of the most exhilarating zombie video game experiences I had ever had back when I was playing this with friends in the original. Unfortunately, it just never felt as though these level four out of four chases were anywhere near as exciting as I remembered them being in the original. I mean, right now on screen, we'll put up some gameplay of the original game and the night gameplay with hordes and chases. Even looking back at this footage, it seems pretty clear to me that one is way more hectic and crazy than the other. Maybe it's my rose tinted glasses, maybe it's just nostalgia, I don't know, but I never really felt as though the sequel nailed the chaos of these night sequences quite like the original did. Yes, zombies chase you. Yes, they hurl projectiles at you. Yes, they attack you and they will kill you if they grab you. But for whatever reason, it just didn't feel as hectic or as fun as it did in the first game. Even with the glider, grappling hook, and abilities like the drop kick and wall run, it's just not very fun running away from the infected in this one. I think it's probably because the gameplay is focused on parkour, and in these chase sequences, there's just not many infected that challenge the player in that way. They may be potent in melee combat if they grab a hold of you, some of them have ranged attacks, and some can run faster than others, but none of them can really do much of anything to compete with your glider, for example, or your grappling hook, or the various free-running assisting gadgets sprinkled throughout the map, especially after you assign them to the various factions that we discussed earlier. Now, perhaps you're supposed to have this advantage over the infected, especially since it grows more extreme as the game goes on and as you level up, but I would say whether or not it's intended, it's still just isn't very fun. And no, playing on harder difficulties doesn't actually fix this. It just makes it so if you're caught, you'll die in one hit instead of three or four hits. It doesn't actually make traversal any more difficult or the process of running away from the zombies any more difficult. I think if they added a hardcore parkour mode, hardcore parkour! Hard that could do it. Basically just a difficulty setting that would change how the parkour system actually works. So for example, you need much tighter timings when you jump on certain ledges, if you don't hit it at the right angle or within a sm much smaller range, then you'll slip off. Things like that, that would actually increase the skill needed to traverse the map. Now, of course, this is certainly subjective. Let's be real. For some, the fact that the free running is easy by the end of the game will be a good thing a hard-earned perk to finishing the campaign. But for others, like me, it just makes the end game and co-op post-story bland and too easy. Now, I'm sure a lot of this can be improved with DLC and expansions that come later on. I'm not sure if they've announced plans to do any sort of notable DLC or expansions, but I'm sure you could address a lot of this in those. It's unfortunate that we have to rely on such things to make games perform in the way I think they probably should have launched, but that's just where we are. And that brings us to the conclusion of our discussion surrounding Dying Light 2. And 
my overarching thoughts is that it's a game that tried to go a route that I don't think they should have tried to go. They focused a lot on the story, and you can tell they put a ton of effort into it. But unfortunately, I think the foundation of the writing just wasn't robust enough to make it really feel as though it was worth pursuing beyond just unlocking various gameplay abilities. And I think they probably realized that too, because the game's pace is a bit all over the place. You feel like you're getting a really interesting setup for a compelling story, the world building is nice, and you're slowly building relationships with characters, and then all of a sudden it just goes downhill and you're at the finish line before you know it, which is why our whole critique of the uh, story section sort of ended abruptly. It's because the story ends abruptly. It's just kind of like, oh, we're we're done. OK, cool. Like, it's a fun experiment to try and take a game that's known for its cooperative gameplay and for its free running and try to add a compelling story onto it. But it really does just go to show you this type of reinvention for a game and this type of refocusing isn't just done haphazardly. It's not just done casually. You have to be very precise and very, very careful with how you implement these systems. Because if you're not careful about it, it just ends up feeling disjointed and unfocused, which is what we get here. I would not call Dying Light 2 a bad game. I think it's good. Like, I enjoyed my time with it. I think the technical issues that burdened many of my friends and many other reviewers certainly offer a net negative to this whole thing. And I've made it very clear before, if a game has very severe technical issues at launch, I don't think you should forgive them. I think they should get, at the very least, a full point deduction on their final score. If it was going to be an 8 out of 10, it's a 7 out of 10. If it was going to be a 7, it's a 6. I think that's only fair. You have to penalize these studios and these publishers for doing that and for rushing these games out. Otherwise, they'll just keep doing it. I mean, look at Bethesda. Bethesda Game Studios, for like 20 years, was putting out games that were broken and buggy at launch, and it was endearing. People used to say, well, that's Bethesda for you. <laughs> it's like, no, they're selling you a broken pile of garbage and hoping you fix it through mods. Like, that's, that's just not cool. And we shouldn't put up with it. And... Thankfully, now it seems like most players aren't putting up with it anymore, but I would just encourage us to continue holding publishers and developers' feet to the fire, because if a publisher can get away with putting out a rushed piece of crap and still making millions of dollars, they're going to do it, because why wouldn't they? So instead, we need to speak up and call them out for it when it's present. The only reason I didn't delve into it too much in this video is because I didn't personally encounter those issues. So it would almost be disingenuous for me to spend a ton of time ranting about all these bugs that I ripped off YouTube or from viewers on Discord. So instead, I'm just going to mention that they were there and that it's serious. I just happen to be very lucky and not encounter many of them. As for whether or not this game is going to keep up with its predecessor in terms of long-term support and player base, I really don't know. I think a lot of players have poured a ton of money and a ton of time into the first game, and... I know people that are still playing it to this day, so the odds are pretty low, I think, that they would shift over into this new game when the content isn't there yet, you know? And all told, I just really wish I had more compelling things to say about the game, but I just, I don't. Like, I, I just, I played it, I thought it was fine, 
And then I moved on and played like Elden Ring, which I have a lot more to say about. A lot more thoughts, I'll tell you what. So I'm just kind of left here feeling somewhat apathetic. You know, like the, the game's not bad, but it's not great. It, it's good enough to be justified as a sequel. But if I'm recommending zombie games, if I'm recommending co-op games, I think it's pretty unlikely that I'll throw out Dying Light 2 as a solid option. There's so much friction. There's so much bloat. There's so much unneeded dialogue. There's just so much stuff in here that feels sort of thrown together without much forethought and without much consideration for whether or not it should be there that... I'm left just thinking that there's other better games to be playing nowadays. But I'll leave it there. Let me know what you think of Dying Light 2 if you've played it. And if you haven't played it, let me know if after watching all of this, you feel compelled to give it a shot. My guess is probably not. But with that, thank you for watching. If you enjoyed the video, hit the like button. Subscribe for new videos. Like I said, we got a big one for Elden Ring on the way, fast approaching. Horizon Forbidden West is also getting a critique in addition to Halo Infinite and a bunch of other titles that I've been working on for the last six months or so. We're finally getting around to making the critiques. Yay, everybody. But that's it for me. Much love. I'll see you in the next one. Bye-bye.